Well, hey there, folks. It's me, Heather, back with another audiobook episode of my Strike Boat podcast. Today, we're going to start on chapter three. It's a long chapter, so I'm going to be breaking it into two segments to save my, my voice a little bit. Uh, just a general comment. Today is 111-2022. That's 111-2022. Very significant day, numerologically speaking. So set some intentions if you're listening to this, and hopefully better days are coming. All right. With that, we will start on to Strike Boat, Chapter 3, Part 1. Chapter 3, Lodi. Lodi was in the shower, leaning with his head on his arms against the wall as the hot water fell down his back, but that was not where he was in his mind. Inside, he was on his belly, in the sand of the desert, outside Kandahar, reliving the worst night of his life. He closed his eyes, helpless to resist, seeing the images that sprang to life on the insides of his eyelids. It was as though they were still real, as though they were happening again as though he was trapped in that moment over and over again. He gave in, stopped resisting, and let the memories come. Behind him, his men were strung out in a line as they inched forward through the sand on their bellies, the unfamiliar desert stars dotting the night sky above them. Ahead was an abandoned hovel, or so intelligence told him, anyway. The squat little building was said to have been a manufacturing site for IEDs, improvised explosive devices. The Americans had raided it the day before, marched out all of the insurgents with their hands behind their backs. It was supposed to be abandoned, but Lodi was taking precautions. They'd been sent in to sweep for more evidence, anything left behind in the initial raid, but the place felt watched. That's why he was leading his men in under cover of darkness. Stealthily, he advanced forward. He was about 20 meters from the hovel when he first felt the icy finger of instinct trace a line up his spine. There's somebody in there. They're watching. Go back. That was the thought that he had, but he hesitated. He looked back at his men again, this time trying to see them from the perspective of someone who might be lurking inside the hovel, looking out. With a jolt, he realized that if the hovel was occupied, if someone was in there right now watching them, his men were exposed and vulnerable. The feeling of wrongness became overwhelming. He felt his skin crawl with the feeling of eyes and ears on him. Should he order the retreat? He lay there for a few moments, hesitating, considering, and in the end, those few moments would haunt him forever. The words came to him from somewhere inside him. Go back. He nodded. They had to. He had made his decision. He activated his communication device to relay this message to his men, but a sound drowned him out. The sound was a whine that got louder and louder, close by. And then, until belatedly, he realized what it must be. He abandoned the walkie and screamed, Get back! to his men, but it was too late. The sound crescendoed, accompanied by a white light that seared, flared, roared to life beside him, 
the heat excruciating. Lodi jumped to his feet, grabbed Johnny Simcoe, who lay beside him, and threw his body weight backwards, away from the exploding device, and that was when the world went silent. There was a pop of white noise as the blast impact hit, and then nothing but a faint hum that could have been the sound of going underwater. Blood gushed from Lodi's ears. His eardrums had ruptured. Dimly, he became aware that his feet were on fire. He stomped them out, turning this way and that, looking for his men, his friends, to see if they were all right. But a second blast bloomed to life right where they lay. He watched in horror, screaming into his walkie for backup, for the medic evac, not knowing if anyone could hear him because he could not hear himself, screaming their location to be heard above what he knew must be the roar of the bomb. In the shower, tears streamed from his eyes as in his mind flashes of light lit up horrific scenes that had seared themselves like snapshots into his memory. Himself crawling toward his wounded and dying friends, seeing Kendrick's face with his cheek blown off so that Lodi could see his back teeth in the moments before the light went out in Kendrick's eyes forever. Johnny Simcoe cradling a gushing stump where his lower leg had been blow off blown off, staring at Lodi with his eyes gone wide with shock, while Lodi staggered toward him, ripped his belt off, and wrapped it around Johnny's thigh, tying the tourniquet just in time to watch Johnny Simcoe bleed out anyway, because he also had a gaping wound in his side. Himself, watching helplessly as Lodi's men all around him, good men, Lodi's friends, died in the sand of the desert. My fault. He had led them in for the slaughter. In a world that had gone silent through the rupture of his eardrums, he laid on his back with the strobe of the helicopters coming towards him, the backup he had called for, too late. He caught movement in his peripheral vision and turned. A big man had come out of the hovel, well-dressed, Caucasian, and he met Lodi's eyes in the glow of the flames. There was a wintry amusement in the man's eyes. Lodi recognized that look for what it was, pure malice. The man raised up his arm, pointed a gun at Lodi. Lodi groped for his own sidearm, found it was missing. He had lost it in the scuffle. He could only pat helplessly at the empty holster and watch as the man pulled his trigger two times. The muzzle flashed twice. Two slugs ripped into Lodi's body armor, right in the center of his chest, and he welcomed the pain. In that moment, he wished that the bullets would kill him because he wanted to die. As the man turned and walked calmly away into the blackness, and the helicopters landed to evacuate his fallen friends, Lodi wanted to die from the knowledge that he had let down his men, had led them into a trap, into their deaths. He had hesitated, and it had cost them their lives. Why had he listened to intelligence when they said that the place was deserted? Why had he hesitated there in the sand when his instinct had told him, retreat? Why had he lain there undecided for those precious few minutes that could have made all the difference as the time ticked away and each second sealed his friend's fates? 
the downwash of the medikivag rotor blades washed over him. The big machine came down, and as the medics rushed out and attended to him, packing gauze over his bleeding ears and the burns on his feet, Lodi saw once again Kendrick's face as the light faded out of his eyes. He saw again Johnny Simcoe's blood as it left his torso in a final glurt to seep into the sand, and he closed his eyes and called up the face of the man who had come out of the hovel and shot him. He made a promise to himself that he would never forget that man's face, that he would never stop trying to find him, to make him pay for what he had done. On a hot July morning, in the shower of his little bungalow on his farm in Mount Bridges, Ontario, Lodi forced himself to call up that face again now, as the hot water took the other images away, as it had for the thousandth time, and he opened his eyes with the image of the face of the man he had hunted still on them. As he did, a vibration came up through the soles of his feet. He raised his head in the stream of hot water and splayed his hands against the shower wall. He could feel rumbling coming up from the ground, vibrations that traveled up the network of bones and muscle that made up his legs. With it, the sound came again, the one that he'd heard on the tractor. I didn't hear shit, King had said, and neither did you, but Lodi had. He heard it again now. He leaned forward and buried his ears with his hands, trying to block out that sound. It was loud, and it was horrid, and his ears were still sensitive now. Eight years later, suddenly the water in the shower stopped flowing. The trembling subsided. He frowned at the faucet, thinking, earthquake? He switched the tap to the off position and stepped out of the shower. Jenna finished locking her bike up at the side of the building. She took a long pull of water from her thermos bottle, and as she drank, the whisper of a nearby conversation came to her on the breeze. She glanced around the parking lot. There were no vehicles, save Jay Marksman's gray Passat. Jay was the IT specialist for the town. She dimly recalled having been copied on an email saying that he would be at the building that Saturday morning updating the municipal malware. She heard the word dozer, and that caught her attention. Still sipping from her tumbler, she crossed the last few meters to the edge of the building and peered around the corner. There were two vehicles there, parked driver's side window to driver's side window, having a confab. She frowned. One of the vehicles was a dusty pickup truck with farm plates. The other vehicle she recognized it was a flashy, obnoxiously expensive Audi RS Q8 that belonged to a man named Kevin Perkins, her CAO. What's Kevin doing here on a Saturday? She wondered. But then the man in the pickup truck handed him an envelope, just like the one she had seen in her dream. And she knew he was taking a bribe. Suddenly, understanding dawned on her. In her time in the office of mayor, she had refused all of the bribes that had come her way, but that hadn't made them disappear, she now realized. They had just come to Kevin, her chief of staff, her CAO, the man who barely tolerated her, who never quite managed to contain the sneer of his disgust when he looked at Jenna or spoke to her. 
She felt a combination of sadness and anger roll through her, but the words she heard next drowned that out. Here's the key to the municipal works yard. There's a dozer there. You'll find keys for all the equipment in a locked cupboard in the trailer. Key for both of those are on this ring. A dull flare of anger coursed through her. Why was Kevin giving out the keys to the municipal works yard? Because of that fat envelope, she thought. She shook her head. The man in the pickup reached out. She could not see his face, just his arm, clad in a plaid shirt with the cuff rolled up as he reached out of the dusty pickup truck to take the keys from Kevin Perkins. The man said something to Kevin, but Jenna didn't catch it. He was facing away from her. Kevin glanced around, then then leaned closer out the window. When you get it cleaned up, drop the keys back on my front porch. Don't get caught. That's a municipal road you're talking about. I could lose my job for this. The plaid shirt guy gave a little salute and drove off out of the parking lot. A second later, Jenna heard Kevin's Audi start up. She leaned back, pressed herself tight against the bricks, and thought, don't look this way. It seemed like it worked. He didn't. A few seconds later, Kevin Perkins drove off, squawking his expensive tires, leaving Jenna to trudge back to her bicycle resolutely. She was thinking about the dream. She couldn't help it. There had been no man in the snakeskin boots, but there had been a pickup, a bribe, handed in through the open window in a gravel parking lot. That dream ended with a mushroom cloud, she muttered. Hope that part doesn't come true as well. Something about that thought gave her the chills. She raked her hair back into a ponytail and rummaged in her backpack for the keys to the building. Hearing the crunch of another set of tires on the gravel, she turned to see a bright white Fallon thrust roll into the lot. 100% clean burning, environmentally friendly, fueled by clean natural gas. The thrust had promotional badges plastered all over the sides of it, amongst a field of eco-themed graphic icons of cartoon blue skies, trees, and flowers. Jenna recognized those friendly-looking icons for what they were. They were greenwashing because the marketing that the thrust was sold under was a claim of eco-friendliness centered around the concept that natural gas released fewer emissions than regular. Bullshit, Jenna thought to herself as she eyed the harmless-looking logos because it was kind of hard to call your product environmentally friendly when a broad product of creating it was a toxic slurry you had to resort to burying in a wetland because there was no Ministry of Environment-approved disposal for it. That slurry was generated by the industry that produced these harmless-looking vehicles, but the supply chain that made them hadn't bothered to sort out any of those pesky little end-of-use challenges before it had started cranking out the thrusts and selling them to the marketplace in droves, and that was what was wrong with the way things were in the first place. She felt the typical helpless rage response flare up inside of her and fought it down. Holding the denizens of industry accountable was a challenge for another day, or so she thought. There was one final badge on the side of this particular thrust that Jenna forced herself to concentrate on. AWU, the Auto Workers Union, 
And in fact, this little badge made Jenna smile because today was Saturday, and that badge reminded her that she was here for a good purpose. Today, she and her administrator, Mary, and the two reps from the Auto Workers Union, Deb Hathaway and Vic Hall, who were getting out of the car, were here at the municipal office to present a check from the plant workers to Sister Act, a local women's shelter for which Jenna served on the board. The funds had been raised by the unionized workers at the Fallon plant in response to a call for immediate need at the women's shelter. There had been an uptick in divisive rhetoric in society of late for some reason. People had become more polarized than in recent memory, and unfortunately a rise in domestic abuse seemed to follow. The shelter was busier than ever. There was need with more children than ever before living there for things like computers and devices, for homework and entertainment, and the Fallon workers had come through. Jenna forced herself to set aside her feelings about the plant itself. She had always had a bad feeling about the place, more so since she found out about the toxic waste. But the workers were good. The workers didn't necessarily know about any of that. They just showed up, did their job, and went home. And today, two of them were here on a Saturday before their mandatory afternoon overtime shift to bring money that they themselves had raised in support of the shelter. And Jenna knew that this was desperately needed for that. She was genuinely grateful. She crossed over to the passenger door of the thrust and held the door open. Deb Hathaway emerged. Deb was a gorgeous black woman with perfect makeup, hair, and clothes. Jenna always admired her for how well put together she looked, and today was no exception. Morning, Jenna, Deb called lightly as she handed a white bakery box out of the open door, her perfectly manicured fingernails shimmering pink in the light from the sun. Hiya, Deb. What'd you bring me today? Cupcakes? Cookies? Jenna smiled, taking the box. She genuinely liked Deb Hathaway, and she had to admit it was lovely to see her. They headed for the entranceway. Laughing, Deb gave a toss to her long, glossy, dark hair. Brownies and girl, you and me and Mary get them all to ourselves because Van Dam over here is training for the octagon. Right, Vic? Victor Paul was at the back of the thrust, opening the trunk and carefully extracting the large cardboard check they had brought for the photo op with a reporter from the local weekly paper. He looked over at them and flashed a quick smile before tucking the giant check under one muscular arm and lowering the trunk. Jenna caught a glimpse of the amount written on the check, $10,000. She had butterflies all of a sudden. That amount of money would do so much good at the shelter. Vic came to join them at the entranceway. Morning, Jenna. He smiled, and Jenna was touched to notice that he had dressed in a shirt and tie for the event. She had only ever seen him in a navy blue work shirt with his name stenciled over the pocket. Morning, Vic, and don't you look handsome? Jenna gave him a quick one-arm hug, then balanced the baker's box in one arm while she unlocked the front door with her key. Thanks, Jenna. As Deb pointed out, I like to keep in shape. At least some people notice. He turned a withering glance onto Deb, then grinned and gave her a quick arm flex. You should come out work out with me sometime, Deb. You're so pretty hot for an old girl. He slung an arm around her and gave her a quick squeeze, then turned and bounded into the building. 
I'm 33, idiot, Deb called up after him. But the two women were laughing as they climbed the stairs to join them. Neither of them noticed the faint tremor that rattled the stairwell's metal handrail as they went up. A few moments later, they were sitting in the municipality's reception area on the little sofa grouping that faced the television where during the work week, the municipality ran promotional videos and clips of council highlights when Mary Lee entered the building and joined them. Sorry I'm late. That was crazy. There's some kind of a sewer light leak down on Piedmont. Traffic was backed up. I had to make a detour uptown. Mary set to work right away. She hung up her purse, draped her jacket over the back of her chair at the reception area, then bustled around making coffee, stacking small plates and napkins on the coffee table and arranging the brownies on a plate. Jenna had to admit they looked delicious and the smell of the chocolate was tantalizing. Soon, the burble of a percolator could be heard from the little kitchenette to the left of Mary's desk. Who wants coffee? Mary said, straightening the navy blue blazer of, his, of her sleek business suit. Mary was Chinese-Canadian, no-nonsense, and efficient. She had given Jenna the gears in her first few months in office, but the two had softened towards each other at the realization that they were both hard workers and team players, and Jenna treated Mary with respect something she suspected her predecessor, Mayor Moody, had neglected to do. They all agreed that sounded good, and a head poked out of an office down the hall. Can I get in on some of that? asked Jay Marksman, the municipality's IT specialist. Smells really good in here all of a sudden. Sure can, Mary said. How's the firewall coming? Almost done, Jay said, coming out of the office and nodding at the others. Hello. Mary disappeared into the kitchenette and emerged a short time later with mugs of steaming coffee on a tray. She set them out on the coffee table beside little crocks of cream and sugar. Jenna picked hers up, added a drop of cream, oh my gosh, sorry, and leaned back in her chair, breathing in the fragrant aroma. She took a sip, savoring the full, rich flavor, then she set the mug down on the table. Something unexpected caught her eye. She stared at the surface of the coffee in the mug. There were ripples emanating out from the center. She frowned, watching to see if it would level out, but it didn't. The ripples kept coming. That's peculiar, she thought. What time's this reporter supposed to get here, asked Vic. He looked at the clock, then stuffed half a brownie into his mouth. 9.30, Mary answered, consulting her watch. I thought he'd be there by now to set up. Let's have our coffee and brownies, and if he's not here by the time we're done, I'll give him a call. Jenna listened distractedly to this conversation. She was still watching the little ripples in the surface of her coffee. Instead of dissipating, they seemed to be getting stronger. She watched transfixed, then became aware of vibrations traveling up through the floor into her legs and feet. Vic had taken his coffee and gone to stand by the window, watching for the reporter. He put a hand out on the wall to steady himself, then turned back to the rest of them. Hey, you guys feel that? Earthquake. All of a sudden, Jenna was gripped in a panic of terror. Images from her dream that morning flashed back to her. The crevasse that had opened in the ground, 
the bodies floating on the water. She'd awoken in fear with the feeling of dread that she was now realizing had never quite left her. She remembered her sense of nostalgia as she'd left her apartment, the sense that she'd had that it was her last time seeing it. And then a very clear voice spoke up loudly from somewhere inside her heart. Something is wrong here. The thought went through her, spooking her on some primal instinctive level. Something was wrong all right. Something was badly, badly wrong, and she could feel it. The little hairs on the sides of her temples stiffened. Every bone, every cell of her body felt it and vibrated with it. She was in danger. They all were. The trembling intensified, becoming a full-fledged quake. The building swayed. Next to them, a standing lamp tipped over, its bulb smashing. Jay Marksman had been standing in the entrance to the hallway to, that led to his office, walking on unsteady legs, hanging onto the wall as he went. He crossed to the sofa and flopped down beside Jenna, looking at her with eyes filled with fear. It's going to be okay, she said automatically, laying a hand on his arm. But in her mind, she thought, is it? The answer came to her almost immediately from someplace within her. Yes, it is going to be okay. Wait. And she found that her own fear was abating. A terrible sound rose up from the ground underneath the building. It sounded like the world was ending, and they all had a moment of looking at each other wide-eyed. Deb Hathaway was praying softly, eyes closed, dimples flashing as her lips formed the words. Jenna could hear her, surreal over the noise of the rumble from beneath them, but soothing. Should we go outside? asked Victor. But Jenna shook her head. It was subsiding. She didn't know how she could know that, but she did. She was sure of it. For now. No, it's almost done. It'll be over soon. Hang on. Jenna said, and it was. There was a last rumble from beneath. The groaning of the old building tapered and waned, and then things were still. They all breathed a sigh of relief, and then Jay looked at Jenna. Think we could put the TV on? She smiled. Good idea. Let's see what the news has to say. She picked up the remote, and they all turned their attention to the screen. An hour before that, Lodi James had been standing at the bathroom sink, staring at himself in the mirror, trying as he usually did to shake off the remnants of the waking nightmare he had just relived, as he did nearly every single day of his life. He gave up and hung his head, unable to get the images out of his mind, the guilt and shame that reliving his trauma in Kandahar brought, that reliving it always brought, of that night in the desert, that he had failed them, his men, and his friends. He wore the weight of their deaths around his neck like a chain. The responsibility rested with him. Sighing, he forced himself to snap out of it. He turned the tap for cold water, but nothing came out except a clanking groan from the pipes. He frowned. The water in the shower had done the same thing. He remembered the sound he had heard, the god-awful sound from deep in the earth, could that have something to do with it, he wondered? If so, he didn't like it. You didn't hear shit, he said out loud to himself, looking into his own eyes in the mirror. Remember? He finished drying off, slung a towel around his waist, and stared at his reflection. 
He was a good-looking man, well-muscled and handsome, but he didn't see it. He didn't see the way the beam of the sunlight fell in through the bathroom window to light up the muscles in his arms and his chest, outlining the definition. He didn't notice the light in his beautiful green eyes or the softness of his lips or the straw-colored hair that he brushed at half-heartedly, which set off his tanned skin. He saw none of that. What he saw was a failure, and he struggled with that image of himself every day. But that kind of thinking wasn't useful, and he had work to do. He had to shore up the chicken coop to keep his midnight visitor at bay. That was priority numero uno. He couldn't afford to lose any of his hens to the coyote, and he didn't have time for self-pity. He shook his head, gripped the porcelain basin, and thought, get a hold of yourself. Suddenly he felt a trembling vibration coming up through the porcelain that grew stronger and stronger until his razor clattered to the floor along with the soap dish it had been resting in. And the light bulb went off in his head that what he was feeling was another earthquake. Strong one, too. Stronger than the tremor that had happened when he was in the shower. He heard something crash in the living room and thought, get outside. He dropped the towel and raked on his jeans. He grabbed his t-shirt, slung it over one shoulder, then made his way through the living room barefoot as the house shook all around him violent shudders that made the old timbers of the bungalow groan. He dodged a falling lamp, then opened the screen door and lurched onto the back porch, where the hanging basket of his mother's geranium swung wildly from its hook. He ducked it, then vaulted over the railing to land in a crouch on the lawn. He stood, took a few staggering steps back, and looked at the house. Whole damn thing's gonna come down, was the thought that went through his head. It can't take much more of this. Then he heard a sickening, terrible noise from around the front on the other side of the house, a ripping sound, loud and wet and somehow rotten. It was the sound of roots snapping and some other sounds that he couldn't identify. It went on for what seemed like ages, and then suddenly the quaking began to subside. Finally, it was gone and he watched the basket of geraniums swing and swing from their hook on the porch roof until eventually that too ceased. He heard the squawk of tires peeling out from somewhere close by. There was a flurry of clucking from the hen house. He turned and looked, saw his prize hen, Princess, emerge from the coop and blink at him, and he crossed over to her and scooped her up, crooning to her, There, princess, there, girl. It's okay. Daddy's here. Daddy's gotcha. He lowered his head, and princess pressed her forehead against his, nuzzling in, and he soothed her that way until she was calm. He set her down, ducked into the coop, and crooned to the other birds until the agitation in the chicken coop settled. He satisfied himself that the coop had survived the quake intact, and then he remembered that sound that sickening, ripping sound that he'd heard from the other side of the house. He had a feeling that everything was not fine out there. He pulled his t-shirt over his head, then went to take a look. When he rounded the bungalow and got his first glimpse, his jaw dropped. What he saw could only be described as a fissure in the earth. 
The dirt road in front of his laneway was bricked in half, lengthwise. A crevasse had opened up. Won't be getting out that way anytime soon, he thought, because the end of his driveway was gone. He could see that the land on the far side was higher, as though whatever force had exerted itself upwards from underneath to break the road open had thrust up the land on the other side, on Donald King's side of the divide. Lodi padded toward the crevasse, came to stand with his bare feet just a few inches away from the edge. He peered down. It was deep, more of a sinkhole, really. He looked to the right, to where the fissure ended just a few meters further away. Then he looked to his left. The fissure was longer on that side. It curved off through Donald King's bean field toward his new building, a tall, narrow structure that Lodi had never quite been able to figure out the purpose of. Lodi walked alongside the chasm, following until he got to the ditch on the other side of the road, but not quite brave enough to step on King's land to follow it any further. The chasm angled off toward the tall, skinny building of corrugated metal, the one that didn't match the design motif of any of King's other traditional red barns and outbuildings. He turned to look back toward his bungalow and could not really believe what he was seeing. From this side of the divide, the damage was epic. He'd been right earlier. The end of his laneway was effectively cut off from the roadway by a chasm that looked from over here to be bottomless or close enough to it that it made no matter. And there was his jeep sitting parked in the laneway. He wondered how long it would be until the municipality got the road fixed so he could get out of the laneway again. He guessed that it would be a long time and made a mental note to move the jeep out back of the house where at least he could get out by the field entrance around back. He stared down into the crevasse some more. Then the thought occurred to him to go check on King, see if he was all right. He looked across, but King's pickup was gone. He remembered the squealing of tires not too long back after the quaking had stopped. Had that been King? How did he even get out of here? He said aloud, marveling. Then he peered closer. King's laneway, like his, had been cut off from the road by the fissure, but a set of fresh tire tracks crossed through the ditch on the far side. Maybe he had someone to go check on, he mused aloud. And then a sudden and terrible thought occurred to him. Wanda. His family friend Wanda Blake was an elderly widow who lived next to him, down the road about a quarter mile, and she was alone in an old farmhouse. Suddenly he had a feeling that Wanda might not be okay, and he decided to go check on her. He went back to the bungalow, put on his shoes, grabbed his keys for the Jeep, and moved it out back. Then he hopped on his quad and took off down the field toward Wanda's house. All right, guys, that concludes chapter three, part one. Uh, just a note that if you heard extra thumping and banging during that recording, I apologize. Uh, we are in lockdown again. My kids are home from school doing online learning, and I have a friend's kid here too. And uh, we are all trying to share space in the house here, me recording in my office, and them trying to do online school from upstairs. So 
Please bear with me if the sound quality isn't what you're used to in an audiobook podcast. I'll leave it there for today. I just want to wish everyone well. Hope you are um, getting by okay in these interesting times. Stay free.